Well, good morning, uh, Grace Bible Church Anderson. I can't tell you how excited I've been all weekend just to be able to say that. I, uh, my name is Ryan Pale. Uh, forgot to mention that. I'm Ryan Pale. I'm the community outreach pastor here at, uh, at Grace. And, um, and although currently, as Pat said, I'm, I'm kind of a Grace Bible Church mutt, so I'm worshiping at, uh, at Creekside. I'm officing at Southwood, and I have many, many meetings here at Anderson. So I get to kind of delve into all. But I haven't gotten to worship alongside y'all in about nine years, I think, is when, uh, is when my wife and I uh, moved to Southwood. And I'm excited to stand up here on the stage for a few reasons. Uh, one, and probably the most important one, is that you all discipled me. Uh, this church discipled me in so many ways. I remember in 1998 as a sophomore uh, at A&M, I remember coming in the doors, I sat right, uh, right here, and I, I listened to a sermon, and I remember just being captivated by it. I just uh, trusted in Christ, and I uh, was beginning my walk with Him, and I was so captivated by it. I was taken in by uh, the Campbells, by the Whiproots, by the Elms, by a number of people. I got to sit under some amazing teaching under Brian and under Dwight. I got to uh, hear Tim uh, during my college years. I got to hear him lead us in worship, and, and later Amanda lead into worship where like even just now like my voice is loud and it's out of pitch and out of key and it's cracking like crazy but I don't even care because they've led us uh into worship and so I am so grateful to get to uh to stand here it's a it, it's a really a tremendous honor well, this morning I'm going to be discussing uh, heaven and hell, a little light topic. Um, so we had a series at, uh, at, at Creekside and then at Southwood, we had a series on heaven and hell. And for those of you who had ever asked the questions, uh, what is heaven like? Uh, the questions, what is hell like? Is God fair uh, that these things exist? What happens after we die? If you've ever asked those questions, I would really encourage you to go to our website and to check out the series. Uh, Matt Morton does a great job of uh, bringing the biblical text uh, into those uh, into those answers, so I really encourage y'all to do that. Or if maybe we have, if we haven't asked them, we have some friends that have asked those things, and and sometimes, frankly, uh, those questions are stumbling blocks to people to coming to the faith. So just it would be worth your while to give those a listen. But this particular question, why on earth is heaven so important, is a pretty profound one for me, and this was actually very formative for me. See, when I was a college student. I was very different. I, I showed up here, and you know, one of the most obvious reasons is that um, my, my hair situation actually switched. So when I was a sophomore, all the wildness was up here, and this was all splotchy and clean cut, and then that just gravity caught up or something. They sank down. I, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not a doctor, but something happened. But that was what I showed up with on Sunday mornings. But beyond that, I was a little bit, you know, naive and stuff. And so I get in this ministry called Youth Impact, which still exists today. And Youth Impact is a, uh, it's a ministry of Grace Bible Church that, that empowers low-income, marginalized children and youth to become godly leaders in our community and in communities around the country, which is what we've gotten to see happen over the years. But one of the things that uh, was so profound during that time that had to do with this question of why on earth the seven is so important is uh, that, you know, there were three things. We'd have a Thursday programming, and there were three things we wanted our kids to understand every Thursday. The first thing that we'd want them to understand is we wanted them to really be shaken 
by the sense that they are made in the image of God and they have a unique and a divine gift. They have a mission. There is something God wants to do through them and our community needs them badly. And so they have this niche and they have this, the opportunity to have a great relationship uh, with God, the creator of the universe. So we wanted them to understand that. We also wanted them to understand, but you know, but as all of us, we are filled with pride and we act in rebellion. So the things that we say or the things that we do or the things that we're complicit in or um, fill in the blank. But what we've done is we have decided that we're going to make God our enemy. So we've separated. We had this wonderful opportunity to be in fellowship with God. Good news, bad news. We've been separated. We've caused God to be our enemy. It's not so great. But then the great solution is God didn't leave us there in our, uh, as enemies of his. He actually sent his son to die so that if we believe in him, we can have eternal life. Uh, so we wanted them to understand these three things. And then the question that we you know, have in our small groups and the question I would pose to y'all is, is so what's, what stops you from believing? What stops you from understanding and believing and really grabbing a hold of these three things? And so we want them to sit there and, and kind of stew on that. So with the little kids, the, the kids that were in kindergarten through like fourth grade, uh, uh, you know, we would present that and they'd be like, okay, cool. What's for snack? <laughs> Oh man, I don't want peanut butter and jelly. So we, we get that. And then, uh, and then after that, once they were in fourth or fifth grade, you know, that, that was kind of how they responded. And then by the time they got to junior high, they were, on, I have no idea what they were thinking, frankly, in junior high. It's just, that's a, a weakness of mine. I have no idea what's going on through the minds of uh, junior high uh, people. But then by the time they got to high school, they were these great critical thinkers. And so when we'd present these three things to them, they would, uh, they would kind of accept the premises. They'd be like, okay, yeah, that's, that's great. That makes sense. But there was nothing that was really stirring in them. There was nothing that was captivating to them, that was transformative to them. It was all just these facts that we were laying out. And so I was kind of confused by it. I didn't understand what was the disconnect. And so in talking with them, one of the things that I had to really be confronted with was there were so many different ways that my middle class upbringing was actually informing the way that I was sharing the gospel with these students, with my students. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I knew when I was in fourth grade, Christmas morning, when I was in fourth grade, I knew that I was going to A&M. So forget graduating from high school. I, already, I mean, that's a given. I knew because I got a pair of sweatpants that were maroon that had Texas A&M on the side. I knew that I was destined to go to Texas A&M University. And despite my grades, I made it. So, um, so I knew that. I also knew as a broke 23-year-old trying desperately to sell insurance, I knew that I needed to have a savings account and the various theories about what you use your savings account for. I knew that you need to wrestle with, you get a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. I, my entire world, my ethos was set up so that I could plan for my future Like every, even though I didn't have the means to, I wanted to plan for my future so that when the inevitable happened, death or retirement, I had a life insurance policy or I had a savings plan or I had a a retirement plan. So I imported all of these assumptions that everybody has that you identify the future and you make plans accordingly so that you can offset, you can mitigate some of the difficulties of the future. I had, I had everything set up to protect myself and I imported all of that in my gospel presentation. But what I realized was that there aren't actually many people that have the ability to do that. And so when I talk about, hey, one day in a far-off time, in a far-off place, you're going to be with Jesus face-to-face, do you see how that wouldn't be captivating to a people who don't know what tomorrow holds? 
And I know we're all supposed to say, I don't know what tomorrow holds. You know, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. We all know that. But we plan for tomorrow. We think about tomorrow constantly. But when you're a person that doesn't know where you're going to eat tomorrow, where you're going to sleep tomorrow, um, I remember showing up at the door for some of our students and then knocking on the door and like, oh, they moved to Houston. What? Just woke up and that's what happened. So what I had to be confronted with was, um, what, what is the relevance of heaven? What is the hope that we have right here and right now? Why on earth is heaven so important? So we have a couple of ways that we approach heaven, I have found. Uh, one of them is, as I said, we think of it as far off place, far off time, that, you know, I'll get to ask uh, Jesus to help me sort out all that predestination and free will stuff. All my questions about the Bible, why did you have this in the Bible, I'll get to ask him and he's going to answer my questions, or why did so-and-so have to die in this way at this time, I'll get to ask him and, and he's going to tell me all the answers and it's great. And so we look forward to heaven because of that. The other thing, though, is that sometimes we treat heaven almost like this mythology, so, and you, you kind of know the person, it's the person that uh, they delve into, obviously you're going to delve into Revelation and, and Isaiah and Daniel, and you're going to put it together and you're going to outline all these details about what the end times look like, so that when it comes up at a party, you're going to have the ability to say, hey, let me tell you what I know about the end times. So it becomes this mythology and almost this Bible badge that we carry around with us. I'd like to propose that heaven actually offers this hope for right here and right now. One of the ways it does is this, is this, there we go. Our understanding of heaven defines our present identity. We remember in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul makes this proclamation. He says, if anyone is in Christ, and then this announcement, behold, new creation. And he leaves it at that. He's so stirred by it that he says, new creation. He proclaims it. He declares it. And what he means is, when you have trusted Christ, it means the work that when Christ was raised from the dead, that work is also being done in you. And it won't be fully realized until Christ comes back again, but it's begun in you. Behold, the old is gone, the new is here. Live into the newness of your identity with Christ. Another way he puts that, or another way this is expressed is in this concept of citizenship. For those of you who write in your Bibles or highlight in your Bibles, circle the word citizenship. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That is so confusing, that whole sentence. I have him, I'm with him until about halfway through, and then afterward, just all the verbiage is, is hard. Um, but here, here's what he's saying. Obviously, the first part, our citizenship is in heaven. That means that I have my papers from heaven. It means that at wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, whose king, whose savior is not physically present with us right now, I am longing for him to come back and to reign with us. But beyond that, the reason I wait for him is because not only will he give us new laws so that we can uh, live our lives a certain way, but he'll actually transform us, which no king has the power to do. He's going to transform our bodies, our minds, our spirits. He's going to transform everything. And what I love what Paul is doing here is 
There was a precedent in, uh, back in the old, as my kids uh, talk about, back then, back then means anything from like when I was a kid to when Jesus was alive. Uh, but uh, back then, um, there was this uh, premise where, uh, you know, the, the Roman Empire was growing, it was expanding, uh, and so what would happen is the armies would come out and they would, they would conquer villages and lands and cities, and, uh, and what would happen is the people that were conquered, they were now owned or ruled by somebody completely different. So uh, what this would look like is you would have the emperor after the city was conquered, like Philippi after the city was conquered, uh, the, you know, the emperor would march down uh, Main Street and he would have somebody going in front of him uh, that would say, uh, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? And what that was supposed to be saying, what they were saying is change from the old way of doing things. You're no longer Greek. Now you're Roman. Repent. Turn away from it. The kingdom of heaven is here. That means they believe deeply that the emperor was God. And so when the emperor is coming through, heaven is coming through, and you are interacting with heaven. So what Paul is saying, he's actually holding up a parallel here. And he's saying when the rulers march through church, when the ruler marches down Main Street, you're supposed to honor him as God. You look right past him and you look at King Jesus. And so I think for all of us, he would say the same thing today. So what this could look like is, you know, I would, it, it begs a question. I would ask, uh, who is our allegiance to? And so, you know, we're in a church, and, you know, many of us probably believe uh, the same things, I would assume. Um, and so, of course, we're going to say, oh, my allegiance is to Jesus. Of course. But I'm just going to poke that just a little bit. I'm kind of a pokey kind of person. I'm going to poke it a little bit. When the rulers walk down Main Street and declare our allegiances, do we follow them? Here's how you might be able to tell. We are in a time where politically we are disjointed at best. That's like the greatest euphemism to say that we're disjointed. We don't like each other. Um, So you might be able to understand your allegiance being compromised. If I have backed myself into this ideological corner of being conservative, of being liberal, of being Democrat, of being Republican, if I've backed myself in this corner, and anybody that's not in my corner, whether it's a friend, whether it's somebody that I've heard about, whether it's a friend of a friend, whatever it is, if I don't have the ability to honor them and to respect them as somebody that's made in the image of God, I have compromised my allegiance. If I don't have the ability to even listen to the other person, even if I strongly disagree, my allegiance is compromised. My gosh, how did we get here? As the church of Christ, who is called to a radical form of unity, which we learned about as we studied Ephesians, how do we find ourselves so deeply entangled in ideologies that this world has set up? We of all people ought to be able to say things like, on one hand, yes, the media is biased, and yes, the media does expose truth. But what's happened is the world has set us up to where we can either say this or we can say that. That's not true at all, church. We stand outside of that, we look past these things, and we look at King Jesus, and we put on display for this world the type of love that we're called to. The second thing that it does, so our understanding of heaven is important because it helps us understand our present identity. So I uh, see the world differently. I act differently because of who I am in Christ and who he's declared me to be. Second thing is this. It gives us a vision for our present calling. 
Um, we, many of us know that wonderful prayer in Matthew where Jesus says, hey, I'm going I'm to teach you how to pray. Um, our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, sacred is your name. Your will be done your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, bring your kingdom. And Lord, make your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. What we ask when we say that prayer is we ask for the things that are happening here on earth insofar as we can participate in making his will happen here on earth as it is in heaven. We do that. We arrange our entire lives around um, advocating for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the ways that we do this, one of the most powerful ways that we do this is in the greatest apologetic that we have is this concept of love. We'll be known by our love for one another. Now, um, the reason this is so different than what the world offers is that, um, you know, I think, about, I think about this concept of love and all the conditions that we place around love. So... Um, if I'll love another person, as, as a believer in Christ, this is a wrong mentality, obviously, but I will love another person, uh, you know, if they believe the same things that I believe. I'll love another person, I will give my love to another person if they ask my forgiveness for something that they've done against me. Then I'll give them my love. I'll give them my love if it's safe, if they won't trample on me when I give it. I'll give them my love if it's convenient, if I got time, if it's between the hours of 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. I'll give them my love if there's no risk. Um, all these conditions that we have that qualify whether or not we're going to give love to somebody. Social awkwardness is a good one, too. I'll give, you, I'll give you my love if you're not socially awkward, if you're not a leech on me. But what we're called to, as we, um, as we understand our identity uh, in heaven, and as we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're called to do is to have a radical form of love. So the challenge here would be, in what ways do I qualify my love? Beyond that, in what ways do I keep myself from extending the love of Christ to other people? For some ways, this means, or for some of us, this means backing out of my corner, for others of us, it means maybe taking away a couple of the protections that we have set up. You know, we, many of us have the ability to set up our world to where we're protected from danger, which obviously there's wisdom in that. Don't hear me saying that that's unwise. But we have set up our lives being so averse to any possible risk that we could be set up against. Maybe it remo- means just removing one of those. And just practically speaking, maybe striving for love for you would be just to open your home or open your um, willingness to have a friendship with somebody that's different from you. Somebody that's a different race. Somebody that's a different age. Somebody that's a, a different sexual orientation just to become friends with them. These are the kinds of ways where we get to live out the love of Christ in us and show this world what kind of a God it is that we serve. Next thing is that we can strive for justice. So heaven gives us a vision because it shows us how to strive for justice. I'm so sad about the J word being hijacked by our culture. For many of us in here, we may hear this word justice and we think, oh great, here we go. What are the whiny millennials saying now? What are they complaining about now? And they're oversensitive and stuff. And so justice has been warped from a biblical view, which the Bible kind of wrote the book on justice. Uh, So it's got the most beautiful, clear picture of what exactly justice is. 
What I have in mind here is we think about a vision for justice. We read about it at the conclusion of our Bible. We see this amazing worship scene. Uh, this that we have, as amazing as it was, was just a foretaste. But we have in Revelation, we have this beautiful image. And John is saying, I looked and there were people from every tribe and tongue and nation that were all singing praises to Christ. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. They're proclaiming these things from, ever, from all over the world. We're seeing Indians and Pakistani people. We're seeing uh, we're singing, uh, Hutus and Tutsis. We're seeing everybody is joined together in front of the Lamb. And so when we think about justice, we're looking that direction. We're also looking at, um, Isaiah gives us a lot of pictures about what this is going to look like, what justice and what heaven is going to look like when Christ rules. In 11.6 he says this, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. It's not the lion and the lamb, it's the wolf and the lamb. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the vegan said, Amen. (laughs) But this gives us such a beautiful picture of what it looks like that the peace and the justice and the rightness of the kingdom of God permeates everything to where even predator and prey lay down together. And are at peace with one another. This gives us a vision for what justice looks like perfectly um, displayed. And so as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have a view for what that looks like. And with everything, with our resources, um, with our time, with our lives, with our family. It means that we advocate for this type of setting to be realized here on earth. It won't happen until Christ comes again, but we strive for it. We strive for this vision of justice through the love that we share with other people and through the ways that we see the world. We strive for justice. Next, as we have a vision for our present calling, this ought to give us a fervor for evangelism. All right, so this is an easy win. Series on heaven and hell, standing up in an evangelical church. I'm going to talk about evangelism. This is kind of a no-brainer here. But um, what I want to do is I want to just kind of give us a little tool to kind of move us over the edge a little bit or maybe to come alongside the ways that we are presenting the gospel. I remember, I mentioned earlier, I sold insurance for a little while, uh, for about nine months, because I was really good at it. Um, and so uh, I, I remember when I sold insurance, uh, you know, I wasn't the best. Uh, and so my, my boss or my manager said, hey, uh, sport, <laughs> I'm going to send you to a training class and, and you're going to learn how to, uh, how, to, how to sell our product which is a great product. And so I went to this class, and, uh, and on day one, I absolutely loved it. It was, uh, it was amazing, uh, because day one was all about how do you build a relationship, a genuine relationship with another, with another person? How do you take a genuine interest in who they are um, uh, and, and just get to know them, be friends with them? And so I was like, oh my gosh, I can totally do this. Uh, it's right up my alley. Well, day two, I ended up being a little bit haunted. 
uh, because that training for how to sell insurance uh, reminded me of how I shared the gospel. Uh, so th- what it looked like as I was, uh, as I was sharing, as I was selling um, insurance or learning how to sell insurance was, it was this, you know, build a rela- relationship with the person. We trust one another. Uh, then um, it becomes, uh, okay, great news. You are, I see that you are a, an amazing mom. Uh, or you're an amazing grandpa, and you want the absolute best for your children or for your grandchildren. Great. It's the great news. Bad news is the inevitable is coming for you. Um, and whenever you pass away or whenever you go into retirement, what are you going to do to set your life up to where you're not going to be a burden to the next generations after you? I, you don't have anything set up. That's, that's bad news. But you know what? The great solution is that um, I have this product that's going to help you out so that you won't be a burden to the people who come after you. Um, and so I remember just sitting there, very vividly remember just sitting there, and I was like, oh my gosh, not that the sales pitch was wrong and not that the evangelism was wrong. I'm, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is I approached evangelism almost as a product. So what I would do is I would dangle heaven and hell in front of people, and that became almost the only way that I shared the gospel. That's absolutely helpful. The Kennedy questions introduce us to where we say, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? And that is a great question to ask. But what we're seeing more and more and more in our culture is that people are not necessarily moved. They're not stirred by where I'm going to spend eternity. They're saying, give me some hope right now. What is the hope of the gospel? And so you and I have to know how to communicate the hope of the gospel clearly. So let me give you an example of what this could look like. Um, just from my own life. So um, I was, when I first gave this talk, I was uh, dabbling quite a bit in materialism. It was something I was really dealing with. And I say that in the past tense, don't be fooled that I've got this thing under wraps. It's just, it'll come up and rear its ugly head. But for the time being, I've got some victory in that. But I was dealing with some materialism. Uh, what happened was I found myself in, uh, I found myself in this uh, sort of bind, this habit to where I took up this new hobby, which is fine. I started buying things for this hobby, which is fine. Uh, but the way it happened was I, in, in this hobby, I would research, 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 and then boom, I need this. And then one click on Amazon, which is a gift and a curse, one click on Amazon. Uh, two days later, I got a package on my front porch, and I go and I, I drive home from work, and I see the brown box with the black tape and the smiley face on the side, and my heart leaps because I know exactly what's coming. So then what happens is I open up my package. I'm so excited for how it helps my hobby. I open it up, and I'm like, yes, this is amazing. But you know what? would be really good that would make this even better is if I had this other thing. So then I go back, do, 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 do. Uh, I do my research, I read the reviews, go to Amazon, one click, boom, I got my package the next day. I open it up and I realize, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But you know what would make it better is you see where I'm going with this. And so I found myself in this habit where I was constantly uh, just without thinking, without even considering the ways my money is a stewardship from the Lord, just buying automatically. Boom, I need it, I need it, I need it, I need it. And then I would come home and have my package. But uh, I found myself in this, uh, in this cycle. And um, so what did I do with that? As a believer in Christ, what did I do with that? Well, I wanted, I wanted to sh- share about it with other people. So this is what it looks like to share the hope of the gospel that we have for right now. I go to my neighbor and I say, um, oh my gosh, I have been struggling with spending money. Uh, like I can't stop spending money. Uh, and then I'm... Sp- like in my head, I'm beating myself up constantly, constantly, constantly beating myself up. I'm so grateful to, to be a believer in Jesus, to know that I'm forgiven. I have a hard time forgiving myself 
but I love the fact that Jesus forgives me, the creator of the universe forgives me. Have you ever experienced anything like that, neighbor? Or neighbor, do you ever find yourself that you are just stuck in something, whatever it is? I'm stuck right now. I have no idea how to get out of it. I keep buying these things over and over and over again. I'm so grateful as a believer in Jesus, I have the Holy Spirit and I have the power to overcome these things. Or neighbor, I, um, after I realize and I've been beating myself up and I've been um, uh, uh, feeling guilty about it, well, what I have now, that I, one of the things I love about being a believer in Jesus is that I'm part of a church and being part of a church means I get to um, share what I'm dealing with. And I got, I got guys in my corner that, are, that love me enough to tell the truth to me and they're going to support me and they're going to come alongside of me. I'm so grateful that God has given us the church. So there's all these ways that we can communicate how grateful we are for how the gospel has transformed us in a way that shares the hope of the gospel with other people in our lives. And so one of the things I'd like to challenge all of us with is that we would make a habit of sharing the hope that we have. So one of my applications is, as you leave today, whoever you're riding in a car with, I want you to be able to communicate um, why the gospel and why, why the gospel affects you right here and right now? Why do you have hope right here and right now? What are you grateful for? And communicate it to the person that you're in the car with. And then share it with somebody else. And then share it with somebody else. Make, make it a habit. And don't discriminate over, oh, it has to be a believer, it has to be an unbeliever. Just create the habit. And as it becomes a habit, then you just share it naturally, whether it's somebody that's a believer or an unbeliever. But we have to learn to communicate our hope. Because unfortunately what the world is seeing so many times from us is they're seeing this white-knuckle morality and they're not seeing a whole lot of hope being offered from us. And so we get the opportunity to offer these little glimpses of hope because of who we are in Christ. I'm also just so confused, I guess, uh, for how we got there. Like, why don't we invite people to share the gospel, I mean, to believe in the gospel because it's true? Like instead of trying to say, hey, do you want to see grandma when you die? Or do you want to not spend eternity in hell? Those are, uh, those are absolute great things to share. But, but why don't we just say, this is true. This is the truth. And kind of leave it there. Why don't we share the gospel? Because when people receive it, they realize that the chains of addiction and anger and, and, and hatred, years of bitterness can fall off. And you can live a new life. Why don't we share the gospel and and ask people to believe in the gospel because in doing so, you're called into a new community that helps you to walk forward and to grow in maturity, grow in love for one another. Uh, Finally, there we go. Heaven is the foundation of our present hope. Um, We read about this in uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. It says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Those of you who interact with your scriptures, circle aliens and strangers or highlight it. Um, This is key. 
our understanding of heaven and our citizenship there and our identity there is paramount in this passage. Uh, Peter is writing this book to a church that's just struggling. They are enduring persecution. They're enduring hardship. And as all of us who enjoy hardship, our faith begins to falter many times. So Peter's writing this book to them, and he's, he spends the whole first part of this chapter reminding them of their identity, the identity of Christ, and therefore their identity. He even does it here. He calls them, your chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. You're the people of God. You were not a people, but now you are a people. And so he's inspiring them in hope, and he, and he tells them, so as God's people... You have to realize that we're strangers and aliens passing through this world. So the more we're encountering our identity with Christ, the more we have the ability to look at the world as a way of really reminding ourselves that we don't belong here. So I see the evils and I see the hurts. I have all of the why God questions. But I'm reminded because of my, our heavenly calling, we're reminded that this is, this, we're, we're passing through here. And it actually gives us the freedom to love pretty radically and to do some pretty radical things when we know that we're not growing roots here. It gives us the ability to abstain from the little petty jealousies that we experience in our friendships. All the little petty things that really drive so much of our days. It actually frees us from that when we're reminded of our identity in Christ. Frees us to love other people powerfully. Uh, One thing I gotta say too is... That the world will actually, the more that we live out uh, what we believe and the more that we live out these identities, uh, the more the world is going to really dislike us. Because the world has operated for its, the entirety of its existence in hostility against God. One of my favorite poets has, uh, has this wonderful poem that he wrote that I'll uh, read here, but he, he calls it, the name of the poem is called Descent. It's by a guy named Malcolm Geit. Uh, and, and it's a word play. So he says, basically, the descent of Christ, the coming down of Christ, the descent of Christ is a descent from the ways of this world. So this world, which is set up by power and by violence that perpetuates itself on those things, um, the descent of Christ descends, descends from that, descends from that. He says this, they sought to soar into the skies, those classic gods of high renown, for lofty pride aspires to rise, but you came down. You dropped down from the mountain's cheer, forsook the eagle for the dove. The other gods demanded fear, but you gave love. Where chiseled marbles seemed to freeze their abstract and perfected form, compassion brought you to your knees. Your blood was warm. They called for blood and sacrificed their victims on an altar bled. When no one else could pay the price, you died instead. They towered above our mortal plane, dismissed this restless flesh with scorn, aloof from birth and death and pain. But you were born, born to these burdens, born by all, born with us all astride the grave, weak to be with us when we fall, and strong to save. And so what we do is we worship a God who didn't make himself immune from the pains and the struggles. We worship a God, a God who, when the world hates us, we know that he is standing alongside us. We know that he didn't make himself immune from those things, but he entered into those things. And so it actually gives us a lot of courage to move forward in faith and not fear. 
One other thing that I want to uh, mention for our present hope, this is a, just a practice that I've had, and this, this may not reach out to all of you, but if there's anybody in here that finds themselves at a place where you're like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of done. I've seen so many things happen that I, I have no idea why or what they're for. Um, I've kind of hit my limit. Um, there's been a couple of times, there's been probably about three or four times in my life where I've done that, where, you know, whether it's abuse or whether it's violent, whatever it is, where I just say, Lord, I don't know. All of my advocacy and love and prayer, everything that I have to offer with my life is so tiny and is so insignificant. And so I have these moments where I'm sitting in my driveway crying <laughs> and confused and desperate, but I'm crying in my driveway, and the Lord allows me to have this vision of heaven um, where I think about the day when Christ makes it all right, where vengeance becomes his, where peace will come finally and fully. And so I, I call it the apocalyptic prayer, but I just say, all I can say is, come Lord Jesus. It's the way our Bible ends, come Lord Jesus and John sees, he, he's writing about all the persecution and all the evil and all the violence that happens in the world. And he ends with this beautiful vision of heaven. And he says, come, Lord Jesus. And so having our hope rooted in heaven gives us the ability to, when we're beyond ourselves, just to say, Lord Jesus, please come. Rescue us. Rescue this earth. So what I would challenge us all with, just in concluding all of these things of how, why on earth heaven is so important, I just want to remind us of a couple of things. One is for you to be able to articulate just like that. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ. Why, why do you hope? Why, why do you hope? And just share that with the person in the car. Good? Good. Okay, so share that with the person in the car and then just create a habit. Then share it with somebody else. Easy, super easy. Practice on believers. Yeah, let me tell you about why I'm grateful to be a believer. Realize that you're, an, that you're a stranger and alien. So whenever you're plagued by, uh, by jealousies or insecurities or, or that self-talk that tells you you're, you know, you're a terrible person or the, or the guilt cycle that you are in constantly, remind yourself that your identity is in Christ and that you are a stranger and alien. You're passing through a difficult world and you're to be a light in it. And it allows you to detach yourself from it. If you have any questions, come see me afterward. Let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that we get to say, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being Lord. Thank you for being Savior. Thank you for giving us the vision of when you come back and reign and make this world right. Thank you that in doing so, you give us hope and you inspire us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your Holy Spirit, which allows us to be unchained by the burdens that this world offers. Thank you, Lord, that you'll come again. Thank you, Lord, that we get to be lights in a world that is convinced that you've abandoned it. We give thanks for all these things in Christ's name. Amen.